Pastor Adam, pastor of ministry development here at Gateway, and it's a delight to share this moment with you as we get to explore our, our closing message of our Advent series, uh, Do Not Be Afraid, Good News Has Come, and today we're looking at the unexpected Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to get them to Luke chapter 2. We'll get there soon enough. And I just want to say, Christmas really is our favorite time of year. Uh, from its continual sense of joy to its uh, knowing that this season represents the newness of hope, that this uh, hope has arrived in its fullest and most complete form. To the ways in which we decorate our homes, the warm fires, the, the warm lights, and, and, and oh my goodness, the copious, copious amounts of baking. And I want to say thank you to all those in the congregation that have, have sent us baking here at the church. It's been neat to receive. But I also love how our neighborhoods, they fully embrace the Christmas season as well with uh, the lights, the strings, the decorations. Uh, driving through our neighborhoods at night is just, uh, it's, a, it's almost magical in the sense of how much light and how much hope and how much joy our humanity faces and, and expresses through the season. And in some ways, I think that's how Luke's gospel opens up in a similar fashion. It's full of hope. It's full of joy. And there's a certainty as, as Luke writes about this Jesus, this Messiah that uh, we've been all waiting to come. We've been preparing to, to welcome. This Messiah, this Jesus Christ, has now arrived. Peace has now come to earth, and all will be well. But as much as we sing, Come thou long-expected Jesus, Born to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Well, it turns out that Jesus is nothing like what we've expected at all. In the Easter season, we talk about the messianic hope that the Jews had, that their future king would be this king that would come in to the city of Jerusalem on a great white stallion and that would eradicate the, the Romans that were occupying their land. But this unexpected Jesus actually did something quite the opposite. Jesus says to the Jews, to the Romans who are occupying their land, he says to them, he says, turn your other cheek, give up your cloak, go the extra mile. Jesus turns it upside down what their expectations have been. He says, it's not about you, it's about laying down your rights for the purpose of growing God's kingdom. And so while reading about this text that we're going to read, I, I came across this quote from this lady, Elizabeth Elliot. And then I had to actually look up who this lady was because I wasn't fully sure. I know I've known her name before. Uh, but she was born in 1926 in the country of Belgium. And at the age of 30, she traveled uh, to the Amazon uh, force there as a missionary with her husband, uh, whose name was Jim. On January 6, 1956, they made contact with the Amazonian tribe of the Wodani. But then on January 8, just two days later after arrival there, her husband was one of five missionaries who were speared to death by the members of that very tribe they came to minister to. And, in their, and I can only imagine in their distress, they, they packed up and went home. But then only two years later, in 1958, she returned to that exact same tribe that killed her husband to live and minister there with her daughter and a few other members. And as I was reading that story, it was, it was just confusing, kind of confounding, and, and, and really actually really quite unexpected. But the story wrote also, that after her return, many among the Wadani tribe accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I just couldn't believe that that was part of the story. It's amazing to, to see it as completely unexpectedly. But then I kept on reading about her, I, I came across this quote that she wrote. And she says, God is God, 
I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. God is God, and I I remove that power, I remove that authority from him if I go and tell him what I need him to do, when I need him to do it, and how I need him to do it. I remove that power from him, and he becomes a less of a God. You see, this woman, she, she just saw her husband be killed. And, and I think about what would justice look like for her in that moment as she saw her husband's lifeless body there. Uh, my, my, my thought would be that some of us would pick up the closest spear and that we would huck it back at the offenders there and try to pierce one of them and have them feel the same pain that we're experiencing. But Elizabeth Elliot in that moment, oh, I'm sure it took her a while to get there, she went back. And she went there with love and with forgiveness. She went there with this amazing sense of care and attention. She went there approaching this tribe with grace and with mercy. And you might say, just going back in my notes here, that she turned the other cheek. You might say that she gave up her cloak. You might say that she went the extra mile. But I feel all too often, friends, that we instruct God on what to do and how to do it. We quickly forget that there's a purpose and that there's a plan for all of the things that we experience, uh, both the good things and even the hard things that we need to face. And so in this text that we're going to look at, we see a Jesus here. We see a Jesus that's kind of confusing, kind of confounding, but also incredibly unexpected. You see, Luke, Luke has spent the opening portion of his gospel here writing this letter about this joy and this hope about the birth of the Savior, of Jesus Christ. But now in this text that we're about to approach, he, he makes a bit of a transition. He starts getting us ready for what is else to come. We've, we've just celebrated the Advent season, and we're, we're kind of still here. We still have our decorations up. We still have our Christmas lights on, and we still perhaps have a few more presents to exchange. But soon all of that will come to an end. The, the presents will stop being exchanged, the decorations will come down, and life will essentially turn to its regular patterns that we are somewhat comfortable with. There will be that uncertain future where we face a year ahead that will be full of events that are sure to catch us off guard. Well, let's go and read our text this morning. So again, if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to get to Luke chapter 2, verses 41, where we read about the boy Jesus at the temple. Let's read together. Now his parents, they went to Jerusalem every year at the feast, for the feast of the Passover. And when he was just 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, and, and as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances and did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard them were, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand what he spoke. And so in this text, Jesus does the unexpected. And we see in this text seven things that him and his family, they do that just kind of change our, our perspective of him, of how 
he's just actually quite different than how you and I might have approached him. First, we see Mary and Joseph. They have an unexpected depth of devotion. We are first presented with this really neat picture of this incredibly devoted young Jewish family during this time of the Passover. It was only necessary at that point in time so for, the, for the males of the household, the adult males of the household, to attend this Passover. Uh, but here we see the whole picture of the whole family attending. And they've made this incredible journey on foot. And I read that they, it was about 130, 130 kilometers of a journey. Now, if, if we here in the church here were to start walking uh, 130 kilometers uh, from the church, uh, if we head up Highway 1 and we eventually take a right at the junction to Highway 3, it would, after four days of eight hours a day walking, we'd find ourselves at the gates to Manning Park. It's an incredibly long distance to walk. It's, it's, a, it's a journey that you and I can make in our cars after about an hour and a half, but it's, it's a great distance to travel on foot. And this is the distance that this family has been making to get to their, their, their temple. And so we have Mary Joseph and Jesus here making this, this, this journey because they're so committed and they're so active in their faith. And they attend the feast in Jerusalem for the entire seven days. You see, even, even for the feast, yes, they had to go there, but they didn't have to stay for the whole seven days. The devout would, uh, the ones that just felt like they would, needed to do it, they would go for the first day or two, maybe three days at the most. But here this family, Luke tells us, they went for the entire feast of the seven days. This family has carved out, at this point, almost 15 days to go to church. Think about it, four-day journey to get there, seven days at the temple, and another planned four-day journey back. That's a lot of time to carve out to go to the temple. And to think of how you and I now, we're, we're doing church in our homes, and we, could, we barely have to cut out of bed to attend church. Think about this family's commitment to their faith. And I'm just drawn by how outstanding it is, how unexpected it is. And also I think of Joseph's livelihood. This guy, remember, he's, he's a carpenter. He's had to give up uh, almost two weeks' worth of work. Now, for you and I, we, we, we often plan uh, two weeks of holidays to go camping in the summers or uh, two weeks to explore the world in other various locations when hopefully we can do that again. But we set ourselves up for that, don't we? We, uh, we get people to cover our work shifts or we actually have holiday time from our places of work. We get people to watch our houses. We get people to water our plants and to feed our pets. But for Mary and Joseph here, we see them in a whole caravan, a whole group of people, perhaps their entire family, giving up two weeks of whatever their lives look like in order to go to the temple, in order to worship, leaving everything behind. And I see these patterns that they're, they're just so unexpected. They're, it's an incredible example of people going above expectations, doing all they can, doing whatever it took to worship their Heavenly Father. Now I pause here and I wonder, as I see this family doing this incredible journey, uh, the 14 days to, to attend church, essentially. How often do we find ourselves doing everything we can in order to worship God? I look at my own life. How, how, how much devotion am I putting in? How much effort am I putting in to actually give all of the time that I need to in order to worship God? And I'm not talking about us as a body of believers being gathered here in the space. I'm talking about what it looks like for you and I on a daily basis to honor and serve the Lord on a regular basis with every aspect of our lives. I'm thinking of the gifts that we've been given, the talents that we've been given in order to give back to him. I'm thinking of our care and attention for our children. I'm thinking of uh, spending time in God's word and prayer as families, as individuals. How much time and effort are we putting in to our devotion to 
deepen that devotion of our Heavenly Father. We could talk more about that, but we'll talk more about that later. Second instance of, an, of this unexpected scenario. 12-year-old Jesus isn't your typical preteen. And so Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph here and their whole family, that they pack their bags. They start their journey home, that four-day planned trip home. But it wasn't until the end of the first day of travel until they realized that Jesus wasn't in their group. Now, perhaps they've done their first six or seven or eight hours of journey and they've set up camp in order to relax and prepare for the day's journey to the next day. And they're gathering around a fire to... Uh, to make their dinner, and they're looking for Jesus, like they're trying to call their kids in for, it's dinner time, but Jesus isn't there. And so they go looking through their whole caravan of people, and they discover that Jesus, in fact, isn't there. Now, you might be thinking at this time that these, these are, are terrible parents, that these parents somehow really messed up in raising the Son of God, and that they've forgotten him, they've lost him, they've misplaced him. That what we're looking at is some ancient example of the Home Alone trilogy, which I found out just the other day that's not actually a trilogy, it's an entire series. But really, it's understandable when you recognize that it was actually really quite unsafe for a small family like this to travel in these times like that. You might remember the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus eventually shares as a parable later on, which tells of a man who was attracted while traveling. You see, that story is grounded in some element of truth in that it was unsafe for these people to travel around in small groups. You see, robbers and thieves, they, they hid in the hillsides waiting to attack unprepared travelers. And so Mary and Joseph and their family, they knew this. So they had to travel in a rather large group. And so Mary and Joseph then were traveling in a group in a caravan, perhaps making this whole journey with uh, Joseph's whole family. And it's crazy to think about that. Joseph had a family that perhaps he was living in the area still with his parents and his brothers and his sisters, and they're all making this journey together. And in doing so, traveling through that dangerous territory, uh, they would have grouped the women and children in the, in the front and all of the men in the back, and that's the way they felt safe while traveling. But for the journey on the way there, Jesus, as a young 12-year-old boy, would have, as a child, would have been there with the woman. But then as we see through this text that we're reading, that Jesus actually grows up. He, he essentially becomes a man through this process. And so on the way back, he could have been with Joseph and all of the men. So we get this idea that he could have been in either group, and he could have, and it would have been fine for his parents to expect that he would have been there. But no, 12-year-old Jesus decides on his own accord to stay back in Jerusalem. And there's something else that's really neat that's happening here. Luke specifically tells us that Jesus is 12. And when our biblical authors give us specific numbers like this, it's worth our time to wonder why we're given such a specific number of 12, as it's a rather important age for any Jewish boy. You see, it was Joseph's responsibilities there to prepare Jesus as an upcoming adult male, to, to be aware of his responsibilities. Uh, first, as a carpenter, to learn the family trade but also as a Jewish adult male. And this was to be done when he was 12 years old. At this point in the Passover, Joseph was to take Jesus along to the Passover and actually show him the ropes, essentially. And so I can picture uh, Joseph traveling there with Jesus, and, and as they approach the temple there, perhaps for the first time of the feast, he's talking to Jesus about the temple, and he's showing Jesus, all right, this is uh, this courtyard for this, this is uh, the space for that, this is where the, the teachers gather, this is where the altar is, this is where all the, the cool places are. And I can imagine uh, Joseph also taking Jesus um, to where they're going to have their meal and talking to him about this very, very special meal and telling him about all the intricate components. I can picture Joseph walking with Jesus through all the streets throughout Jerusalem, showing him the markets and showing him where he could get the animals for the sacrifices that he would need in the future. 
And I can imagine Jesus as this 12-year-old boy who, yes, yes, we know is fully God, but he's also this 12-year-old boy as a human being. And I could sense this sense of wonder, this sense of amazement as he's walking around this great town. I can imagine his eyes are just wide open, taking it all in because he knows something is going on. And as I think about this, what I also think is also super crazy is that maybe at the same time as Joseph is showing Jesus around, that God the Father is doing the exact same thing with his boy child, his son, Jesus Christ. That while Joseph was showing Jesus the temple, he was showing him the brick and the stone, that God was showing Jesus that that temple would soon be obsolete and that that temple would in fact be Jesus Christ. Maybe God was showing him that as Joseph was purchasing the lamb for their family sacrifice, maybe God was showing Jesus in that moment that he would be that perfect spotless lamb for the sacrifice for the sins of all. Maybe God was showing Jesus at that point as they walked the streets as tourists that he would be walking those same streets later on in his life with a cross on his back. I think it's mind-blowing to think about that. And so we see Jesus coming of age. And we need to recognize that Jesus wasn't born an adult male who had all of the adult male capacities. He was born a human child that needed how to learn, how to walk, and how to talk, just like you and I have. He needed to learn the language. He needed to learn how to read and perhaps how to write. He needed to learn about family dynamics and social patterns. Well, yes, we acknowledge he was still fully God. We get that. We understand that. But I guess some of the tension here was we realize that he had to grow as a human. And here we see him getting a better sense of what his human life would look like. Well, then the time came for the feast to close and Jesus wasn't done learning yet, so he opted to stay. Third instance of unexpected scenarios is that Jesus essentially graduates at the temple. And so seeing his family leave, we, we see him make his way back to the temple as a 12-year-old boy. And he doesn't go there to hang out with other 12-year-old boys. He doesn't go there to throw rocks off the temple mound. He doesn't go there to chase the birds out of the courtyard like I would have done. He goes and he sits with the teachers. Now we know a little bit about the Jewish educational system. That before Jesus was five, he, he would have learned the basics of life. How to walk and how to talk. And he would have began to practice reading the scriptures and interacting with them. By the age of 10, he would have been learning how to read the scriptures and memorizing them. He would have worked through the five books of Moses. He would have learned the books of the prophets, the Proverbs and Job and Esther and Ruth, and he would have memorized a, 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 a whole bunch of it. And now at a 12-year-old boy, as a Jewish male, he would have been learning about the Jewish law, the patterns and expectations that governed all of Jewish life. And that kind of would have been, would have been the process that would have taken him to age 15. But and I came across this interesting factoid about this process as well, that the student wasn't really finished being a student until they were able to prove themselves by holding themselves in a debate with their peers. It was kind of like a graduation of sorts or, or a rite of passage into the adult Jewish life. But now we see Jesus here. Picture this again. He's sitting there uh, in the temple having this conversation, this debate with not his peers, but with his teachers. He's not in the classroom with his peers having a conversation. He's in the staff room with the teachers holding a debate, holding his own with the Jewish leaders. And it blows my mind and it blew theirs too. Theirs too. Because the Jewish leaders, well, they are amazed. 
this moment was completely unexpected. You might suggest that they're a little confused, they're a little confounded. This just didn't happen. You see, children were, were to be seen and not heard like you and I were sometimes raised. And in this moment, I can picture in this moment that not even they're supposed to be seen. But here, 12-year-old Jesus was, holding his own, asking and answering questions with the great teachers. Number five, Mary and Joseph, they certainly have a confusing child. And this is where now, finally, on day three of Jesus' disappearance, that Mary and Joseph catch up with him. This is where we, as parents, we can understand that Mary's tone was, was pretty firm. You see, she's been missing her eldest son now for three days. There was a time where Pam and I were leaving our church of old, and we were trying to round up the kids, me being one of the pastors there, I'd stay until the bitter end, and talking with all the people that are there, and Pam was milling around, the kids were milling around, so we assumed that they're all there somewhere. Um, but one of them wasn't. And as we packed our things and get ready to go, we couldn't find one. And five, not, I could only picture maybe five minutes, maybe even two minutes go, goes by, and we see this look of fear in each other's eyes that was like, well, where's, where's the one? They could be anywhere. They could have left in some other car with someone else. They could have gone home with another friend. They could have been wandering down the street. We had no idea. And that immediate panic of, of a missing child is instilled in your heart and your heart starts pounding. That was only after like two minutes. Can you picture Mary and Joseph here? They've been missing their son for three days. Could you imagine the panic? Could you imagine the anger? Could you imagine their fear? that they've lost the Son of God. So she's a little angry. And she approaches Jesus with perhaps a little bit of that anger. But I could also get a sense that she's also really greatly relieved. So we see her blurred out. She says to them, so to Jesus, well, why'd you do this to us? Your father and I have literally been going insane looking for you. And as parents, we can understand that. As parents, we hurt endlessly when we're out of touch with our children. When our children have gone different directions than we would have desired them to. When they've made different decisions than we would have wanted them to. And so on a different level, our children, they confuse us every day, don't they? And we don't understand always what they do. We don't understand how they talk. We get confused by the games they play and the choices that they make. And for those of you who are feeling this way, longing for your lost children, longing for their healing, longing for their return to yourself and probably more importantly, a return to their faith. Well, Jesus' next words here aren't, well, they aren't super helpful for us as he's talking about he, how he must be in the temple. But his words to come and his actions later, we'll see that we see the sense of love and this care that he has for both you and your children. Which takes us to the next one, number six. This is, a, this is a big one. Jesus identifies God as Father. Now, if you have your Bible still in front of you, I encourage you to look at verses 48 and 49 there, particularly at the word Father and how it's different in how it's presented to us. In the first instance, Mary refers to Joseph as Jesus' father. She says, son, still referring to him as a little child. She says, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father, little f father, and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, because you and I, we know the Christmas story, we've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks, we know that Jesus, sorry, that Joseph is not actually Jesus' actual earthly father. However, we have seen this family act as a close, united, intimate family 
which was also unexpected because Joseph, think back, remember 12 years ago, uh, he was betrothed to Mary, which they were pretty much married at that point. And uh, he finds out that Mary was having a child and that he wasn't the actual father. He had every right to divorce her, to leave her. And, every, and society would have said, yep, that makes sense. That's okay. Because she was pregnant out of wedlock. But now Joseph there, he married Mary. He adopted Jesus as his own son, which is also quite unheard of, which gives us the bigger picture of understanding of how devout and how righteous Joseph really was. And so then Jesus responds to his mother. And you can picture again, Joseph sitting amongst the teachers there in the temple. And you can imagine Mary, as she's just scolded her son in front of these guys, you can imagine she's hoping for some element of apology. You can imagine that she's hoping for some element of concern for her, his mom there. And Jesus looks up, and I can imagine he's still sitting down. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Big F, capital F, father. And it's super interesting that he refers to God as his father. You see, Mary and Joseph, because of their Jewish uh, uh, nature and their t- traditions and their understanding, they would have known that the temple is in fact the house of God. That that's where God presides. That's why they can't enter the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. That's why only the high priest like Zechariah, like we talked about a few weeks ago, could only enter that space one time a year. And so further, up until now, throughout the whole Old Testament, the only time that God is addressed as a, as a father is when he's talking about being the father of all of Israel, about the whole nation of Israel. You see, up until now, he's never been referred to as a father of a particular individual. Isaiah writes it this way. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Another example, uh, as David writes this particular psalm, he's, he's writing this familial comparison. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to all of those who fear him. And there's many other examples like this, but, the other, but other authors emphasize that if this is true, that if God is the father of the nation of Israel, then the nation of Israel must be all his children. So the author, Deuteronomy, he writes this, you are the sons and daughters of the Lord your God. And Jeremiah writes this as he's writing, as Ephraim, my dear son Ephraim, being one of the tribes of Israel, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. And so in each one of these verses, the underlying theme is that God is the father of the entire nation of Israel. It's never been referred to as a singular father at this point. And again, remember Jesus sitting there with these Jewish leaders, the smartest Jewish guys in in the town. They've all collected there for the Passover, and this is who Jesus is sitting amongst and he calls God his father. It's never been done up until now. And I can only imagine that these men that he's sitting with, they're just mortified. They're offended. They're shocked. They're just absolutely confused that he's now just equated himself with God the Father, with Yahweh. This is just absolutely unheard of. So now because of Jesus in this moment, and what he does and how he addresses God as father, You and I, we have the ability to approach God in the same way as our Heavenly Father, as your Heavenly Father, as my Heavenly Father. 
He is no longer this distant God that is found only in the temple, but now closer than we can ever imagine. And you might say he lives in our hearts at this point. And we have access to him moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. We have access to him as our father at any point in time. And it's an amazing privilege to be able to say that. And this is the future image of the curtain being torn in two at the death of Jesus later on in his life, giving us the full access to the Father's grace as his very own children. And that's you and that's I. And up until now, Mary and Joseph, well, they still didn't understand. This is still unexpected for them. And this part, as I've read this story a few times over this past week, this very verse catches me off guard every time I read it. As we've heard over the past couple weeks that both Mary and Joseph, both 12 years ago, they've heard from the angel saying that they would be the earthly parents of the Messiah, the Son of God. And even as a parent, I, I, I go back and think about the stress levels that they had as they would have parented him. The pressure they would have felt in order to teach him all that he needed to know because they knew in their hearts that they were raising the Son of God. I'm sure he learned it pretty quick like because he was, after all, still God. But now here, 12 years later, it appears as though they've forgotten the angel's visits, that they've forgotten those words, that they are raising the Son of God. And they didn't really fully understand now what Jesus' desire was, that he was to be with his heavenly Father there in the temple. But what I also love about how John approaches the same story is that over the next 18 years, Jesus grows up to be a vital part of his family. Somewhere along the line there, Mary figures that out. She, she gets a glimpse, she gets a, an understanding about his purpose. There's a wedding feast that's captured by John later on in his, in his life. And Mary says to the servants that are serving the wine when the wine had run out, and she says to him, says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do in this moment. You see, Mary and Jesus were at this wedding, again, where it's, like I said, where the, where the wine had run out. And now Mary somehow saw, because of the last 18 years of however she got to know Jesus in that way, she saw this now as an opportunity for Jesus to enter into a part of his ministry, to be a part of the solution, to start his kingdom ministry. And so Jesus performs then and there his very first public miracle, turning the water into wine. Telling the guests at the wedding, Mary, his mother, his brothers that might have been there, and us as well who get to listen in on this moment, that he is better than anything that we have received before. Because remember at the, the story there, the master of the ceremonies said, who brought out the best wine for the end? Well, that's what Jesus is saying. He's the best thing that we've ever experienced. That he is sufficient for all of our needs because it tells us how many cisterns of wine he made for everybody. He is sufficient for all of our needs. Which brings me to my next point. That Jesus loves and cares for those who are concerned, those who are confused. Luke 51 again, or sorry, 251. Starting for uh, verse 50. And then they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Again, that's after he responded to his mom saying, why were you looking for me? Did you know, not know I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand at verse 51 now. And he went to them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And so as we see the story start to close, we see an incredible shift take place. We've just been told that Mary was utterly confused by Jesus' words. 
but now Jesus stands up, and I can picture him now, again, picture him still there with the, the other Jewish teachers, and he's sitting down, and I can see at this moment he stands up, he straightens out his robe, the teacher's still looking on with that fear, that mortification on their face, that astonishment, and Jesus says, okay, let's get going. And so Luke tells us, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, his parents. Luke tells us that he basically went home and obeyed his parents, that he respected them. Now, as many of us have come to know Jesus in a deep, personal way, one of the things that we have experienced is his love and his, compar- his, his care and his compassion for all of us and even his attention, all of which he is showing his parents in this very moment. You see, I think in that moment as he sat down there, he also saw his mom's concern. He felt his father's fear, Joseph's fear, and he knew what he had to do. And so he chose in that moment to show his obedience to his heavenly father by obeying his earthly parents. He chose in that moment to show his obedience to his heavenly father by obeying his earthly parents. And so as I've interacted with this text over the last week, I've been captured by what's happening in this moment the creator of the universe, the one who was there when the sun began to shine, the one who was there who saw this earth and its moon and all the other planets put into its first orbit, the one who ushered you and I into the existence that we love today, the same man, Jesus Christ, the son of God, he submits to his mom and to his dad. I'm blown away by that. But he does this. And he does this because he knows now more profoundly and more completely than he did before just who he belongs to and what his purpose is. Because of that, he was able to profoundly obey the ones placed in earthly authority over him. And we see in this moment this care and this compassion that he has for his parents. And we know that today that you and I, we can experience and enjoy that exact same compassion that he has for each one of us and for our children for our children's children, for our parents, for our grandparents, for our neighbors, for our schoolmates, our colleagues, our employees. In all of this, Jesus invites us to wonder. And they did not understand what he was saying to them as he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all of these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in the favor with God and with man. And so then as parents who've experienced some kind of crazy turnaround from their child, the ones who are suddenly now obedient, Mary stops. And she treasures this moment. And she pondered what was happening as she reflects upon her experience. And so as we heard last week from Pastor Bill that this wasn't the first time that she treasured this moment to think about what was happening. Luke tells us two other times, uh, Mary was greatly troubled and wondered when the angels came to visit her. Mary treasured the moments as the shepherds came to visit her family there in the stable, in this moment that we just read. His mother Mary treasured up all of these things as they were leaving Jerusalem. We see Mary has experienced many great things. And to each one of these moments, she stops and she reflects, she ponders about what has just transpired. And I'm curious, how many of us really stop? How many of us really deeply wonder about the work of the Lord and how we've experienced it firsthand? What does our lives look like when we stop and wonder? 
which got me thinking again about Elizabeth Elliot and her story. And I'm curious about how she stopped and pondered that very moment when she saw her lifeless husband on the ground there. As she struggled to understand what was going on in that moment, as she traveled back to Belgium, as she sorted out her life in its new normal, I wonder what was going through her mind as she couldn't shake the feeling that she was still called to minister to the tribe that they attempted to already visit. But then also think about Jesus in this very moment that we're in as well. There he is in the temple and then submitting to his earthly parents. I wonder what was happening in his mind as he's making the connection between understanding more thoroughly the point of his life and the purpose of his existence there on earth. And also seeing in that very moment that the time for him to step into his kingdom ministry had not yet arrived. I think partly he understood in that point what he needed to do and how he needed to do it. But God the Father was telling him, just be patient. It's not time yet. We'll get there. And so part of me thinks that both of these individuals understood similar things in these moments. You see, they both understood that there was something else happening in their lives that drove them to obedience. They both understood that they belonged, both body and soul, to their faithful Father, their faithful Heavenly Father. And in those years between 1956 and 1958, as Elliot was rediscovering her life in that moment, she knew she had to return to that tribe. And in those moments there in the temple courts with the Jewish teachers, Jesus knew he had to return to his hometown of Nazareth with his parents because his time had not yet come. And so I wonder for you and I that when significant things happen or the simplest or mundane things occur, perhaps a death in the family, a terrible heart condition, breaking your leg or even stubbing your toe. I wonder if in these moments, if we really wonder and ponder about whose we really are. I wonder if we remember whose hands are wrapped around us. I wonder if we fully accept and realize that as Jesus called God his father, that we too are invited to do the exact same thing in the moments of, of stress, in the moments of anxiety, in the moments of joy, and in the moments of hope. That we have the father to rely on. Because you and I, as we have faith and as we grow into it, we are his children. And I love how John writes it this way. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. And Paul writes it this way to the Galatians saying, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. And I love this one as he writes to the Romans. And if because you're those children, if you are those sons and daughters, then you're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him if we have that faith that he's invited us to. We become heirs of God alongside his son, Jesus Christ. And that's an incredible, an absolutely incredible invitation to us this day. But I also wonder if we understand the Heidelberg Catechism and what it says in question and answer number one. We started a service off not too long ago looking at this one, and here it is again. And if you know this one in your hearts, I invite you to say it along with me as I read it. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the powers of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. And indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. 
Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And part of me gets a little stuck on heartily willing. I think again about this Elizabeth Elliot story and the fact that she returned to the tribe that killed her husband. It's only God who was able to make her heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him, to return to that tribe. And as we all know, life isn't easy. We face unexpected realities all the time. We are handed curveballs, hiccups, and bumps around just about every corner of life. And this coming year, something that we'll probably talk about a little bit this Thursday at our New Year's Eve service, this coming year might be filled with much of the same. What Luke is doing here, though, in the story is giving us this incredible, profound confidence and assurance that when life does offer us those difficult moments, those unexpected turns, those unexpected moments, that we have this unexpected Jesus, our God who walked amongst us and experienced similar and even greater pains, even typical family struggles. So you see, because Jesus was human, he understands what we are feeling. He understands and able to identify the pains that we've experienced, the longings that we have in our hearts. And so because he is God, there's something that he can do about it. And he does so as we lean on him. He does so as we open up our hearts to receive him. He does so as we let him know our greatest struggles, our greatest concerns, our greatest joys, and our deepest hopes. And friends, if this is new to you, I invite you to ponder this one. I invite you to have a sense of wonder about what this means in your life and that he can do something about it. Friends, let's close our